Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Karen Tongson is the author of Why Karen Carpenter Matters and Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries. In 2019, she received the Lambda Literary Jean Cordova Award for Lesbian and Queer Nonfiction. She is Associate Professor of English, Gender, and Sexu Sexuality Studies, sexuality, excuse me, <laughs> and American Studies and Ethnicity at USC and co-editor of the award-winning book series Postmillennial Pop with Henry Jenkins at NYU Press. Previously a panelist on MaximumFun.org Pop Rocket podcast. A lot of plosive P's in this bio. <laughs> she now co-hosts Waiting to Exhale with Winter Mitchell Rohrbach. Roshana Keshti is Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies and Affiliate Faculty in the Critical Gender Studies Program at the University of California, San Diego. She is the author of Switched on Bach and Modernity's Ear, Listening to Race and Gender in World Music. She is currently completing her third book, We See with the Skin, Zora Neale Hurston's Synesthetic Hermeneutics. Her writing has appeared in the Radical History Review, American Quarterly, Anthropology News, Parallax, Feminist Studies, GLQ, Theater Survey, and Sounding Out. Please give Roshanak Kashti and Karen Tongson a round of applause. Wendy Carlos is the original synth, declares the gleaming banner that opens the biography page on Carlos's expansive website, proclaiming an identity for a figure notorious for disidentifying with proclamations made by journalists and scholars about her. In the evolution of the concept synthesize, the preoccupations of modernity, a mastery and control over nature, became superimposed on a concept that originated as making anew. Having perhaps grown tired of the cursory mentions of her role in the history of electronic music, none of which seemed to recognize her foundational presence, Wendy Carlos reclaimed that original meaning when she coined a new moniker for herself, original synth. Like a plaque certifying the authenticity of the biography page it frames, the claim original synth establishes electronic sound synthesis as an oxymoron, while also laying claim to it as an identity. If an oxymoron, as the Oxford English Dictionary defines it, is a figure of speech in which a pair of opposed or markedly contradictory terms are placed in conjunction for emphasis, then original synth reveals through juxtaposition that origins are synthetic. They are artificial and manufactured, yet necessary myths made real for the purposes of rationalizing the present. Yet the phrase also subtly points to the original meaning of synthesize, the deeply human act of creating new knowledge, revealing the contradictions inherent to a reading of electronic music as that which is artificial and in direct 
uh, opposition to the natural sounds of the acoustic. Original synth is also a pun, riffing on the Christian origin myth in which the desire for knowledge and the knowledge of desire in the allegorical form of Eve's feminine sexuality narratively function as Christian man's downfall. This playful, punful decree could refer to the obsession that journalists have had with Carlos's gender identity. It could also be read as representing an ex experience characteristic of the times to which Switchtonbach became a soundtrack, the oxymoron of a post-war world defined at once by civil rights and post-colonial liberation struggles and the apocalyptic scenes of war. After all, the arc of Carlos's career reveals her to be a composer of film scores, Switchtonbach being perhaps the first. To imagine Switchtonbach as a soundtrack to a moment is to think of it as both a sound of a moment and a sound making that moment meaningful. Wendy Carlos embarked on her career as an electroacoustic music composer in the 1950s. The instruments at her disposal were machines designed to serve the Cold War agenda. And the figures who dominated this avant-garde musical movement were men. After a chance encounter with a young Bob Moog, who was presenting a prototype of his synthesizer at the 1964 Audio Engineering Society conference, Carlos would go on to collaborate with Moog on developing a custom unit which would change the course of electronic music history. The chance encounter ties to war industries and the unlikely propulsion to superstardom and pop iconicity set Carlos's career on a course no one could have dreamed. The spotlight and the at times unwanted attention that came with it caused Carlos to reject claims circulating about, about her and retreat to a private life. Carlos would eventually reemerge from that retreat as original synth. The oxymoronic identity original synth evoking the image that Carlos herself was the instrument presents us with a seeming contradiction. Wendy Carlos was for me a cyborgian goddess who shepherded my self-discovery through the Moog synthesizer. As a young queer musician in a scene dominated by straight white men, I became aware of Carlos's influential place in electronic music history at a time when I felt like I was a lone woman synthesist. The hidden history of her role in bringing the Moog synthesizer on its circuitous path to me was critical to how I would come to relate to the instrument and its gendering. Wendy Carlos was also the cyborgian goddess that pop music was waiting for in 1968 when she ushered in the popularity and cult status of a then obscure musical instrument. This platinum selling album won three Grammy Awards in 1969, entered the top 40 charts, stayed there for 17 weeks, and remained in the top selling 200 albums for over a year. Wendy Carlos as unlike the uh, sorry, the declaration Wendy Carlos is the original synth lays claim to being both a Wendy and an original synth, an intersectional embodiment that represents a synth gender that is a nature culture. Synth gender draws our attention to the gender identity disorder inherent to electronic music. 
It chronicles the hostile takeover of the sonic realm by fascists and warmongers, which I talk about in the book. Um, after capitalists had deliberately feminized sound in the late 19th century. Unlike cisgender, which often de describes perceived gender conformity, synth gender merges sound and gender and refuses normative gender legibility. To be an original synth is to dispense with the binary gendering of electronic music over the course of its technological history. Synth gender employs gender noise to refute the listener's wish for gender legibility. Synth gender also rejects any primacy given to originals. So-called originals and analogs are equals. Not only does synth gender reflect a musician who changes as a result of becoming entangled with the synthesizer, but it changes the instrument, which becomes tainted or elevated by the musician. These entities become mutually constituted as a synth-gendered agency. They become synthesized. Chapter two, switching on. To switch on is to electrify, which seems just important to remind ourselves of. The anxiety around automation became attached to the synthesizer in the mid 20th century. The kinesthetic act of music making the strike of a hammer against a string, the strum, the anthropomorphized heartbeat of a drum seem to be at risk of being replaced by electricity, the very literalization of abstract power. Electrical voltage as a source for music, the very stuff of science fiction. The twilight zone of a post-nuclear world seem to be descending in the form of the synthesizer, an electrical instrument with the the power to shift shape. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. Electronic music is the poetic and unexpected outcome of paranoid Cold War research. The appropriation and adaptation of one affect, paranoia, and the development of musical instruments with an electromagnetic capacity to inspire ins infinite other affects, especially queer and countercultural affects is where the story gets very, very interesting. It was through messing around with theremins that the young Bob Moog developed his circuit design chops, not only demonstrating the one he built from his own design during his senior year of high school, but even creating a line of Moog theremins available through mail order. Described by Moog as a space control electronic musical instrument, the theremin represented a symbol of the space age and the space race at once. As the theremin's progeny, Moog's synthesizer design was preoccupied with proximity and touch, which continuously emerged as a theme in Bob Moog's musings on the connection that Moog players had with their instruments. I can feel, quote, I can feel what's going on inside a piece of electronic music electronic equipment, unquote, testifies Bob Moog in the documentary about his life. This echoes the answer he gave to my question posed during a Q&A about the difference between analog and digital sound. Quote, all I know is you can feel the difference, he replied. The feeling of sound was something I was deeply preoccupied with as Moogstress and as a budding sound studies scholar. The sine, sawtooth, and square waves, the voltage control filters, 
the modulation of waveforms, these were mere metrics that could not describe what actually happened to me when I played the Moog. Inside Bob Moog's circumspect description, you can feel the difference, was the answer I'd been searching for. I could feel sound waves, both literally as vibrations moving against and through my body, and as a transmission of electronic affect. Moving on to chapter three, Switched On Studio. I'm reading from a section called Magic Carpet Ride, the Persian rug at the center of Carlos's studio craft. The opposite of a silent film, Switched On Bach is a soundtrack with no moving picture, accompanied only by a still image, which is this one. On its cover beneath the 1960s Rococo revival gown-wearing winner of the J.S. Bach Lookalike Contest, which I'm trying to embody today, <laughs> beneath the muted, unpatched modular Moog synthesizer, just in front of the white Persian cat taxidermically curled upon a chair, lay a Persian rug. This Persian rug is the setting for the soundtrack with no film. Yet the music aficionado handling the LP was never meant to consider, to, co to consciously notice the presence of this setting. The same can be said of the listener to innumerable songs recorded in studios that feature a Persian rug. This is by design. The Persian rug is in the recording studio is meant to appear in the recording's unconscious, impacting the dream state, its fantasy of itself. Despite its ornamental and floral detail, its visual loudness, so to speak, the Persian rug in the recording studio is not meant to be heard. It is meant to be felt by the performers, audio engineers, and producers, a spirit brought in to anoint. This unconscious spiritual presence emerges as magic on record, or so recording lore portends. The so-called Persian rug is the centerpiece of any self-respecting music studio. The present absence of the rug on the cover of the Switchdambach LP, which epiphenomenally made its way onto the record, enshrined the Persian rug as the foundation of the recording studio, which was on the rise within a music industry reaching the summit of its arc in the 1970s. Subsequent to switched on Bach, Wendy Carlos would erect a legendary recording studio built around none other than an octagonal Persian rug. This rug became prominently featured along with cats on her keys and subsequent photos published of her in her studio. I come from an Iranian family with a long line of, of rug designers and dealers. As a child, I spent innumerable hours inhaling the noxious licorice-tinged fumes of mothballs as I played in my great uncle's Persian rug gallery in Nashville, Tennessee. Like the children snug as bugs in rugs and Henry Dar Darger's, they attempted to get away by rolling themselves in floor rugs, which I hope you will take a look at if you don't know what, what I'm talking about. I grew up in a woolen playground where us kids would get lost in rooms filled with Persian rugs, fantasizing about getting away from boredom, humidity, the South, the shackles of our youth, what have you. 
Mine was a tactile consciousness of these objects, a scratchy feeling of heavy wool on summer-exposed shoulders and legs, a purely middle-class diasporic sensory perception alienated from the arduous labor and cultural skill set necessary to produce these artisanal, purely organic, unsigned works of art. Rugs were ubiquitous in my world. Every room of every familial house I ever entered was decorated with rugs. So when I first noticed the octagonal rug in the center of Wendy Carlos's famous studio, that most familiar object suddenly appearing in an unexpected place, its juxtaposition against the wire, speakers, keys, knobs, tape machines, and the like, suddenly made me aware of a binary code integral to all contemporary Western recording studio design, whether analog or, or, or digital. And that, that binary, of course, being traditional, tradition modern. Like an amulet, the rug is imagined to bring good juju into a space where almost anything can go wrong at any moment. It is magic. But how does the Persian rug alter the symbolic and imaginary acoustics of the recording studio, especially when the resonance of the room is irrelevant to the sound because, of course, you plug in? I'll just wrap up here. Returning to the cover of the Switchdambach LP accompanying the Persian rug is a Persian cat. The cat on, in, at the piano is a trope in Western folklore that can be found in cartoon drawings, paintings, and all over Wendy Carlos's website and albums. Persian cats and Persian rugs are no more Persian than is modern day Iran. They are the stuff of domestication, breeding, franchise colonialism, and cottage industries of the 19th century developed to satisfy the growing European bourgeoisie demands for exotic luxury goods and accessories. Then as now, conspicuous consumption of luxury goods like Persian rugs was fodder for the aspirational or the petite bourgeoisie. Similarly, similarly the Moog 900 series, which is a unit that would basically like take up this this cavity here up to the wall. A piece of equipment out of reach to all except university music departments and celebrity musicians has been modified for those of us who aspire to be like Wendy. What we learn from Switched on Bach and Wendy Carlos's incredible career is that energies and magnetisms are perpetually present and available to work in what scholar and poet Fred Moten has called an ensemble with us. What Wendy Carlos as original synth has exemplified is a life of capacitance, a life lived as a conductor for electromagnetic fields. I'll end on the refrain that has been most resonant for me. Quote, that's the trick, the magic of synthesizer tape performance, unquote, which was a quote by Rachel Elkind, her, her producer. This statement encapsulates what was always the most alluring thing about Switched on Bach, the analog synthesizer and shape-shifting. These are instruments of magic, which have subsequently been put to every imaginable and unimaginable use in every genre of music all over the world. It is the thrill of this magic that continuously brings diehards and new audiences to Wendy Carlos. Thank you. I'd like to invite Karen Tongson to join me.
Well, you have your instrument, I have mine. <laughs> um, yes, so it's, it's just such an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you about this book um, because, you know, I felt so many resonances with the kinds of things you were describing, even though um, the musical artists that I write about are very different and use very different instruments and, and conduits for these feelings. And, you know, I'll say like any great 33 and a third book, Roshi's book really, um, you know, gives you a lot of nitty gritty detail about, you know, the kind of some of the production of these materials, of, of the music. It gives you a lot of that really gratifying stuff behind the scenes. But it also, I think that where you closed is where um, the project is most resonant and that's in like that space of magic, mm -hmm. that place that you're talking about um, where when we think about synthesizers and we think about the, the um, theremin or the, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's about that electricity that, that, that's actually conducting itself through our bodies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's something, that's the mood that's captured by this book. And I wanted to kind of ask you to, um, you know, talk a little bit about how you decided to organize the book in and between these vignettes of your coming to consciousness about many things, and especially sexuality, as you were contemplating this particular um, album? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I'm not somebody who was, uh, who appreciated classical music. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what brought me to this album. You know, I grew up in the South. I grew up in an immigrant family. And so classical music was like up there somewhere like beyond anything I could appreciate um, and so this album weirdly became my gateway drug to appreciating you know European the European art song uh -huh. you know and subsequently going on to become a music scholar um, you know, so it's a very strange pathway into that otherwise very pedestrian sort of form of music. Um, and so I felt the need to constantly reiterate that throughout the book, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, I, I have as much business writing about classical music as I do writing about, like, electronics. Mm -hmm. And so it, it made more sense for me to articulate um, how I did identify with the instrument. And it was as this queer thing that <laughs> was kind of asking to be fondled by me, you know, <laughs> and... and what a weird instrument, and why was I magnetically drawn to it? Why was I oriented to this instrument? It was something I was perplexed by for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. I have this, I remember my first MySpace page, <laughs> I had photoshopped myself into Wendy's studio. Oh, wow. And that was my main picture, and I've been looking around for that for, for a while, but, you know... I, it was, it was, it just made sense to me. This instrument made sense to me, but it didn't make sense to me that it made sense to me. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you call it, you know, you called listening to that, that this produced or was, it wasn't even that it produced, it was the queer feeling, right, this mm -hmm. instrument. Mm -hmm. um, and I love how you just talked about, you know, the Bach thing, the Bach element of it being kind of your turn to the Occident, but then that you move in the book back to the Orient, and it's mm -hmm. like the kind of flow back and forth, and then the kind of critical consciousness that happens around and in between mm -hmm. those moves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I One of the things that I also really appreciate about the book is that it's not shy about reframing Switched on Bach and Wendy Carlos, and in fact, um, this, these electronic instruments as something that isn't necessarily part of this avant-gardist uh, impulse or kind, you know, um, our tendency to kind of treasure things that are avant-garde, mm -hmm. but that you really reclaim it for something else as something that's that's beyond that really kind of rarefied world. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? You know, like the kind of taking back, like taking back the Bach and, and acknowledging its popularity, its presence mm -hmm. as a kind of popular conduit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in everything I've read, both Wendy and, you know, Columbia Records um, had very low expectations for that record. Um, it, it came out, you know, along with several other kind of classical records that they were trying to market to a wide audience. And, and this was the one that they thought would sort of die <laughs> and, and, or at least be forgotten and go into obscurity. And instead, it immediately took off. And, and literally everyone stood around scratching their heads for years. Mm -hmm. Why? And I think that has always intrigued me too. Why? Why does this album, why did this, you know, you go into any Goodwill anywhere in the U.S. and you will find this record. And so what is Goodwill? You know, God, Goodwill is the trickle-down archive. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's, in, if it's in Goodwill, then it tells you something. And if it's in every Goodwill, it tells you a lot. And, you know, that, the, the ubiquity of this record, you know, everyone from people who, you know, understand Bach to people who never had any classical records in their collection had this record. And um, Wendy seemed to be really, according to everything that I've read, you know, she seemed to be really committed to veering away from the avant-garde into the popular mm -hmm. and making Bach relevant to a generation of new listeners in 1968. Um, and that is linked in many respects to the kind of the, the, the gender play that you're talking about as well because of, you know, um, the, the or even the kind of synth gender making its way into this other scene of domesticity, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. that is gendered feminine and away from the kind of way. I love how you refer to it. Um, the different masculinities between avant-garde and popular masculine, feminine, militaristic dominance of these things. And like my favorite phrase is, consider how disco and house responded with flamboyance and flourish to the camel-toed butchness. Mm 
a progressive rock synthesizer. Mm -hmm. But I love that. But that's sort of you know like that's one of the things that I really appreciate about that. Like that that to popularize and to make available um, is in many respects like uh, there is that kind of link to the sphere of femininity of domesticity of of you know sharing as opposed to the hoarding of these resources mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, right yeah. right and I think you know the the it's interesting to look back historically and see a wave that carries one thing up as this kind of emblem that represents a moment in time. And I think Wendy Carlos was just as surprised to be that figure at this moment. And, you know, the, you know, what is happening in the world in 1968? Well, what better way to represent that motley kind of chaos than the sounds that she was producing? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one, every record producer in the world would love to imagine that they could, you know, they could wish that popularity onto every album that they make. One, you can never do that, mm -hmm. right? And so why and how that this album was able to do that, I think, speaks to precisely what you're saying, that, um, you know, there was a fatigue around the kind of, like, machismo that was circulating in certain forms of representation, whether it was the perpetual representations of war on TV or certain kinds of music that were kind of, you know, over-testosteroned out, you know? And so um, this, this seemed to be speaking to a lot of people at that time, and I think that, um, to what degree it represents the audience's willingness to engage with this question of synth gender is something I, I can't, I can only speculate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, given that popular culture is a, a site of fantasy, you know, I think it's not too, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that audiences, you know, enjoyed the, uh, the the ability to fantasize about that synth gender space. Also, um, it's interesting because, you know, you're, when you're talking about the ubiquity of finding the album, the actual LP in Goodwill stores, it's really, you can't find this album streaming. No. You can't find it recorded on YouTube. Mm -hmm. You can't find, you know, it's not something that you can locate very easily anymore. And there's a way in which it's almost like it's, it's re like as an object, it's retreated. It's become yeah. a rarity. Yeah. Um, and, and same with uh, Wendy Carlos at this point as well, right? Is that she's sort of um, kind of uh, become more reclusive and the website itself hasn't been really updated in a while, right. which is a big right. part of what right. you talk about here. Right. And, right. and, you know, and I wonder, I mean, if you have any sense of what, that's about, or if it's about like, you know, because I think that that happened in different moments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think that when she was undergoing her transition in the early 70s, she sort of stepped out of the public eye for a bit. But there was a period where I saw these amazing videos of her with her cats, mm -hmm. right, in the 80s, like, you know, demonstrating all sorts of synth sounds yeah. and things like that. Right, um, right. But, you know, how do you, how do you correlate maybe um, that receding 
from the public eye with the rec the receding of the album mm -hmm. from the forms of the electronic forms of circulation that we're used to. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 analog synthesizer um, is not digital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so streaming is digital, and I think that you know the materiality of the record, of the instrument, of the music industry that w that gave that provided a viable career for musicians, you know, which is kind of not necessarily the same industry now because of the the, the change in the medium mm -hmm. um, I think Wendy um, used you know her copyright to insist upon the the tangible material object and is is continuing to do so and you know um, why not Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, as as even if it's a symbolic gesture, um, you know, I, I I kudos to anybody who can stay off of Spotify mm -hmm. in 2019. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially for a record that's 50 years old, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think that um, the materiality of the record and the and the and the the Sub, the content that's on the record, I think, is what she has tried to maintain the integrity around. And th that brings us all the way back to just, you know, the sense that it's about feeling. Yeah. It's about touch. Mm -hmm. It's about those tactile things. It's about um, that and the reverberations and being conduits. And I think that that's just, that's maybe a lovely place for us to open up to yeah. everybody else's feelings right now. <laughs> Uh, so questions and comments, you're willing to take these, sure, right? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, the first time I heard this record, I was like, weird. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, um, it's peculiar. It's a peculiar sound because, you know, it's Baroque music, which like in the 90s, I wasn't trying to listen to Baroque music. Um, and so on the synthesizer, you know, so it has these kind of sharp edges to it that, that can be a little bit like, you know, being poked or, or something like that. Um, so it, it, it definitely um, wasn't ear candy right away, uh, which is what made me actually lean into it, right, is that the more I learned about it, the more I was like, okay, wh what made so many people want to hear this? Um, you know, despite the fact that it's not kind of easy listening or, or pulling you in. Um, and, you know, it, the way that it, it influenced me as a musician was, um, you know, to kind of grant me this you know, this hubris, you know, around just 
making noise um, that wasn't necessarily um, beautiful or didn't have a kind of, you know, melodic quality to it, you know? I mean, I, I'm a sound studies scholar, I'm a music scholar, but what, what most people don't know about me is that I don't like punk. <laughs> and so I'm not somebody who was like trying to listen to noise. And so <laughs> she, I'm like pop music all the way, you know, like we did karaoke a few years ago. I pulled out some jets, mm -hmm. you know, like a little Lisa, 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 Lisa and cult jam. Yeah. You know, I love that stuff. Very synthy. It is. All of those that's things. That's yeah. all very synthy. And so, you know, she, made it okay for me to kind of go into my zone with my sign and my square waves. And so, you know, it, it was an authorization of a kind of noise that I had never felt authorized to make. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I don't remember exactly what year the Terry, Terry Riley came out. Okay, I think so. Subsequent to the popularity of Switched on Bach, there was this new kind of fluorescence of these, you know, more pop, you know, avant-garde and or classical records that were, you know, catering to these markets and audiences. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you may also know that there was a Moog kind of interpretation of everything under the sun at that time. Yeah, so Moog, you know, Christmas albums, Moog country music, Moog, you know, Yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think in, in terms of the music industry, this record was a game changer, yeah, for a certain kind of pop music that had previously not existed. Yeah. Okay. Yes? Yeah, I mean, this is a very controversial question, you know, <laughs> for, for, for anybody who cares about this subject. Um, you know, there is a kind of Mason-Dixon line that separates analog from digital. And to the untrained ear, there's no way that you can tell the difference. So 
how we can prove that difference is still sort of debated. But, you know, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that um, because of the history of the technology, um, because, because the human body was at some point needed to create, to be essentially a, 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 a capacitator, a conduit for electricity in making these sounds when it was still a theremin. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of speculate about how, um, you know, our, our various forms of, you know, electromagnetic fields that our bodies create in the form of brain waves, in the form of our heartbeats, are actually interacting with the electromagnetic waves coming off of the instrument. And so that's not the case with digital because of the, 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 the little literal structure of the, the molecular structure of how the information is, is delivered to you. So the, the, essentially the, the electrification that happens between these things, you know, um, the body, the instrument, the record, you know, um, I personally would argue that that matters and um, experientially, I would argue that that matters. Um, I'm not going to struggle against somebody who disagrees with me because <laughs> I think there's room for an opinion that says it doesn't matter. It's more so a kind of faith-based, <laughs> you know, commitment to um, this phenomenon. Uh, you know, so, you know, we can agree to disagree. You know, if you have faith in digital, that's okay. I don't. In other words, it's magic. It's magic. And on that note, thank you all for being here tonight. And um, Roshanak will be uh, signing books and high-fiving people. And let's <laughs> celebrate once more the release of this book. With thank her. you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.